0: The scripture reading is from Mark 5, verses 21 through 43. And when Jesus had crossed again in a boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talita kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should notice and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord.
1: About 32 years ago, which more and more makes me old when I think about this, but um, about 32 years ago, I transferred uh, universities, and I went from one university to an in-state university, and I um, moved into a room with a student I didn't know who actually became good friends with me, but probably within the first month of being on campus at this small, middle-sized school in central Georgia, um, I met a good friend of my roommate. Uh, my roommate wasn't a believer, and I wasn't a believer at this time, um, but this friend of his was a believer. And within a month, this friend named Jeff, who later I would become good friends with, he came into my room, and he began to share the gospel with me. <clears throat> and I think I listened for about five minutes, and I said, wow, that's crazy. You need to leave my room. You need to get out. I didn't want to hear it. Made him leave. Um, over the next couple months, um, I got to know him better, and I got to know my roommate better, and I got to know other Christians on the campus better. I don't know how, um, in a sense, uh, just ended up going to some Christian ministry things that uh, to this day, I look back and I go, why in the world did I go to this? I have no idea why. Um, my roommate went, and he bo- I can remember both of us sitting in a meeting and sitting there going, um, Jim, why are we here? What are we doing? And we filled out a card and we passed it in. He's like, why are you filling out a card? You know, they're going to come to our dormitory room. And I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, And it was interesting. Over the next couple months, I got to know this guy, Jeff, and a lot of other Christian students on the campus. And one of the first things I started noticing about them was that they were very different. Um, They were very different than the average college student. They were very different than me. Uh, The way they cared for one another, the way they talked to one another, the way they had fun together was radically different than what I expected. I found myself thinking that these people were a little weird, but they would give me the shirt off their own back if I had a need. And that really impacted me as a guy who grew up not in a very not in a, in a lower middle class or a low-income family. At the same time, I was getting to know these Christians who whose lives and friendships were so different than anything else I'd experienced. Um, I was also starting to learn a little bit about Jesus. <clears throat> And it wasn't that I wasn't interested in Jesus. It wasn't that I even didn't, that I didn't know a little bit about Jesus. Of course, like the average American, I thought Jesus was a great guy. Maybe somebody we should emulate. Um, He was a good moral teacher. Um, But that was about as far as it went. Um, But as I got to know Jeff and some of these other students, it became clear that Jesus was more than a good moral teacher, but that he was actually God who had come in the flesh to bring salvation to all who would put their faith in him. But the idea of who Jesus claimed to be in the community that loved him began to change me and my understanding of who and why Jesus had come. Now, forward, fast forward a few more months, I'm still getting to know these people, and it was time for my annual trip to Mardi Gras. Now, every year since I graduated high school, uh, my high school buddies, we'd get together for about 12 years and we went to Mardi Gras. I only went a few times, but we did what everyone does when they go to Mardi Gras, and that is you party, and you drink excessively. And that's what I did while I was there with my high school buddies. And while there, when, while there, in the middle of the week, drunk, in the middle of the day, we came across some college students in Jackson Square near uh, this cathedral, I think it's called St. Louis, Louis Cathedral, and the weirdest thing I'd ever seen in my life as a 21-year-old was this group, this throng of college students coming through Jackson Square, carrying a 15-foot cross um, on their backs, eight feet wide, and they were passing out tracks, and they were basically sharing their faith in the middle of Jackson Square, trying to gather students together to hear about who Jesus was. Now, my friends were mercilessly mocking these people, and I was as well, but in my heart, and I never expressed this to them at that time, in my heart, I knew that something had changed with me. Because I stood there in the middle of that square and I thought to myself, what in the world am I doing with my life? What in the world am I doing with my life? I left Mardi Gras at the end of that week, um, went back to college, and two months later uh, made a profession, a public profession of faith, as a follower of Christ. It wasn't that my faith, my faith had grown and I came to trust in Jesus, but I didn't completely understand who Jesus was. I still don't completely understand who Jesus is. We're learning day to day as we look to follow him and know him. In today's story that was read earlier, we are introduced to two people, a man named Jairus and an unnamed woman. Both had heard heard, heard of Jesus but really didn't know who he was. They didn't understand that he was the son of God, that he was God come in the flesh. And both, (coughs) excuse me, But both of them are about to meet Jesus for the first time, and their entire world is about to be transformed. And I don't, when I look back at that time in Mardi Gras at Jackson Square, I, you know, I look back now and I go, oh, God was already changing my heart. I didn't know it at the time. The same with Jairus and this unnamed woman. God was already working in their heart before they even approached Jesus. The story begins by introducing us to Jairus Verse 22 tells us that he's a ruler of the synagogue. He was the guy who would basically plan the worship service and take care of the facilities. He would have been well-known, well-respected, well-liked, and probably well-off financially. He likely had heard, as I said, that Jesus was a teacher and a miracle worker. He might have even been present in seeing some of Jesus' miracles as many of them happened in and around his own community. Jesus may have even taught in the synagogue. Though at this time, there was a growing tension and strife between Jesus and the religious leaders. However, Jairus' daughter is seriously ill and at the point of death. She's only 12 years old. She's his little princess, and she's on her deathbed. This causes Jairus to do something extraordinary, even risking his reputation by coming to Jesus. He's willing to do whatever is necessary, just like you or I would do, in a similar situation. So Jairus summons up his courage and his faith and he goes to seek out Jesus. The text doesn't say, but I think we can guess, that the doctors had already come, they'd already done their best, and yet his child was still getting sicker and sicker. She is dying, and as she's dying, as she's not getting better, Jairus is getting more and more desperate to do what he can to save his little girl. You can almost feel the desperation in the passage. So out of this desperation and out of his love for his daughter, Jairus comes. This well-respected, elevated man, powerful man in in his community comes, falls at the feet of Jesus and literally begs Jesus, pleads with Jesus to come and lay his hands on his daughter, that is to heal his daughter. It's amazing to think that this man in this high, uh, in a position of authority, in a position of respect, literally goes to an itinerant preacher Um, and flings himself at his feet and, and is begging with him, come and help me, please Jesus, come and help me. My daughter is dying, come and help me. Jairus believes that only Jesus can save his little daughter. Verse 24 simply says that Jesus went with him, and the crowds that always seemed to follow Jesus around, continued to follow along, some coming to see another miracle, maybe some in that crowd needing a miracle for themselves. As Jesus sets out to go to the home of Jairus, our story is interrupted by an unlikely person. We are introduced to an unnamed woman and told that she had suffered from a medical condition for 12 years. She had a bleeding issue for for as long as Jairus' daughter had been alive. She faced all kinds of obstacles because of this issue, and she suffered greatly from it. She suffered physically. The constant blood loss would have weakened her and made her anemic, She would have had very little energy and just living and doing life would have been exhausting for her. She suffered financially. We're told that she had spent all that she had, that the doctors and their remedies had not helped her, but had rather impoverished her and made her worse. And she also suffered socially. According to Leviticus 15, she was considered unclean. Her continuous bleeding made her unclean and anything her continuous bleeding made her unclean so that anything she touched or anything that she touched with her, her hand, a person or thing was also made unclean by her. She was not welcomed in the community, she was not welcomed in the synagogue, she was basically an outcast in her own society. She would have lived separately from everyone else having next to no contact with, it, with people. However, like Jairus, she was desperate. Somewhere this poor woman had heard about Jesus, Maybe she had heard how he had healed the unclean leper in Mark 1, or maybe she had heard how Jesus had healed this man who was possessed by demons at the beginning of chapter 5 and restored to complete health, to his right mind. And she had heard about these stories, and because of that, she is seeking out Jesus because she is desperate and in need of a miracle. She believed that, that touching Jesus, that only Jesus, and that touching his clothes would actually heal her. Though coming from totally different worlds, both she and Jairus were in the exact same position. They were desperate, they were hopeless, and they were willing to do whatever was necessary to be restored. So this unnamed woman reached out in fear and faith and touched Jesus' garment, bam! She's The blood immediately stops. She, knows, she says immediately she feels in herself that she's been healed, that she's made clean. That all the struggles with uh, her health have ended at that one moment of touching Jesus' garment. Now, Jesus responds to this release of healing power going out from him and turns around and says to the crowd, Who touched my garments? And the disciples looked at Jesus and they're just incredulous and a little disrespectful. And they're thinking, What in the world, Jesus, are you talking about? Who touched your garments? Look around you. Everybody's pressing on you. Everyone is touching your garment. How can you ask such an absurd question? And like so many times before and after, the disciples still did not grasp who stood in their midst. However, Jesus ignored the disciples and continued to look around the crowds. And this woman, trembling, came and fell at his feet, just like Jairus. And she told Jesus her entire story. We might have expected Jesus to respond in anger or judgment. After all, an unclean woman touching Jesus should have made him unclean. But the opposite happened. Jesus' touch made the woman clean. And Mark is making it clear here and elsewhere in his gospel that Jesus' purity and power is greater than her impurity than our impurity. Jesus responded to this woman's compa- with com- this, the story of this woman with compassion and tenderness. There's no scolding. There's no disdain. There's no judgment. Just loving restoration. All her shame, all her guilt, all her fears swept aside. When Jesus looks at her and says, "Daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed. No longer living as an outcast." but as a child of the kingdom of God, as a daughter of the king. This interlude comes to an end when messengers arrive bringing horrendous news of the death of Jairus' little girl. We are left to wonder what Jairus felt upon hearing this news. Was he angry or frustrated with Jesus for not coming more quickly? Was he angry with this woman for interrupting Jesus, not letting Jesus get to his house on time? was he despairing or sad the text doesn't tell us at all but regardless jesus used this little interruption to teach jairus a valuable truth jairus needed to see faith in action to increase his own faith in Jesus' power and authority he needed the reminder of this woman with an issue of bleeding to fully understand that faith in christ that trusting in christ can overcome all obstacles from incurable diseases to death itself the story continues goes on and continues with Jesus and his inner cycle and his inner circle of disciples along with Jairus hurrying to his home they arrive at the home and they're immediately confronted with crying and and wailing because of the death of the child and to everyone's surprise Jesus rebukes the mourners and tells them the child is not dead she's just sleeping And at this, their weeping turns to mocking laughter. The mourners must have thought that Jesus was a fool not to understand that this little girl was dead. But Jesus is no fool. He knows that he holds authority and power over death. So he dismissed the mourners from the house and went with the mother, the father, and his disciples to the bedside of the sleeping, dead little girl. He reached out and he took her hand and he said, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately she got up and began walking and he gave her something to eat. And the story ends with everyone was amazed at this miracle that had been performed. Now, As we come to the end of the story, I want us to look at three themes that sort of run throughout this text today. These three themes are large and we could easily preach a sermon on each one of them, and I promise I'm not going to do that. I, you'll be out of here before lunch. I'm not telling you what time that will be, but it will be before lunch. No, I'm just kidding. Um, the first theme running through this entire story is simply faith. Jairus and the unnamed woman are pictures of true faith, and their stories are sandwiched between two other stories depicting a lack of faith. We're told in chapter 5, uh, with the, again, with Jesus healing the, the uh, person possessed by demons we're told in that chapter and earlier in this chapter five that the townspeople come out after jesus healed this demoniac and they literally beg jesus to leave their region they refuse to, to even acknowledge that what jesus had done was miraculous instead it frightened it frightened them and it scared them and they beg him to leave the region showing their lack of faith in chapter 6, right after this, what right we just read, Jesus goes to his hometown and he preaches in a synagogue where you would think that he would be welcomed and well-received, but he's not. And it, the text ends, that story ends with Jesus preaching in a synagogue by him saying that he was amazed at their lack of faith. So our is sandwiched between these two stories showing lack of faith or lack of trust in who Jesus is. They're placed in contrast with each other to clearly demonstrate to us a need for faith. And the reason for that is because faith gives us access to the power of Jesus, right? Both Jairus and this woman had already had some form of faith in Jesus when they approached him, right? They would already believed that Jesus was capable of doing something or, or on a bare level they hoped that he could do something. They were desperate and at the end of their rope and they realized that there was nothing they could do to change their situation. So they went looking for Jesus in hopes that the one they had heard about could do something powerful and miraculous for them. You know, faith is recognizing that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. We need the power of God to transform us and to transform our situations. Also, don't miss the fact that this woman's faith was an incomplete or a misguided faith. What I mean by this is, is that she believed that touching Jesus' garments was enough to save her or to heal her. The Greek word for, it says heal, is the same word as save um, in the Greek language, all right? So it's interchangeable. She believed that Jesus could heal her. She believed that Jesus could save her. This was a common belief in her day. This was what most people in her day believed, that with these, these miracle workers, that it, just simply touching them could, could bring about their healing. Even though her faith wasn't fully correct, she was still healed. When Jesus called, um, yeah, well she was her faith wasn't so correct, she was still healed. So think about this for a second. This woman who had this misguided belief, a misguided faith, thinking that, oh, I can touch Jesus' clothes and I'm going to be healed, still was healed. She had enough trust that Jesus still said there was enough trust in that misguided faith, in that unplaced faith in garments instead of Jesus himself, fully and not fully understanding him, that Jesus still healed her. When Jesus called her out in the story and demanded to know who touched him. It was an act of kindness on his part. He wasn't trying to embarrass the woman. He was calling the woman to acknowledge her healing before the crowd so that she would understand that it was faith in Jesus that made her well, not his clothes. Now, I don't know about you, but this story really encourages me because I think back to when I first came to faith in Christ. I didn't understand completely who Jesus is. I don't understand completely who Jesus is now. Sometimes my faith is lacking. Sometimes I have anxious faith. Sometimes I have little faith. But the, the truth in this story is that we don't have to ha- we don't have to have all of our theological ducks in a row for Jesus' power to work in our life, for Jesus' power to work in our situation. And when we lack faith, as Mark will say later in chapter nine, we can say, Jesus help me in my unbelief. Help me in my unbelief. Faith is also not a one-time act. You know, I think sometimes we get caught up thinking that, oh yeah, we entered into the Christian faith through faith, um, and that's good enough. We go about our merry way. But in this story, when Jairus received the news that his little girl had died Jesus said to him, do not fear, but continue to believe. He said, do not fear, but believe. And that's, in the Greek, it's continue to believe in the power and the person of Jesus. Faith is an ongoing act of trust in the power of Jesus, no matter what comes our way. Our lives are to be lived by faith. J.C. Ryle says it this way, um, by faith we begin, by faith we live, by faith we overcome, by faith we enter into rest. We are simply to be living Day by day in faith. The second major theme that I want us to see in this text today is that the kingdom of God is inclusive. And you can't help but see that in this text, and I think we'd be remiss not to talk about that. Jairus and this unnamed woman are presented as opposites in every possible way. He's a man who is probably wealthy, as I said, ritually pure, and well connected. She's unclean, poor, and outcast, and female. She was among the lowest of the low in her society. And their stories, though, don't focus on their differences, but rather show us where there's commonality. Their great unifier is their desperation and their faith in Christ and their faith in Jesus. Faith enables the unclean or the pure, the rich or the poor, access to Jesus, access. To his power before Jesus and in his kingdom Jairus and this woman are valued as equals as followers of Jesus this is to be our pattern as well in Christ through faith we are equal we're not to be separated out by money ethnicity position or power we're to treat one another as equals with love respect and compassion and we're to work toward removing divisions and obstacles that might divide us. The third and final theme I want us to look at briefly again is that is the power and authority of Jesus to bring new life, uh, and to bring restoration out of any situation. Now there are four miracle stories that start in Mark chapter 4 and run through the end of chapter 5. They go out of their way to show Jesus' power and authority over all creation and present him to be more than a miracle worker, to be more than a teacher. These miracle stories show us that Jesus, who Jesus really is. He's God in the flesh who has come with power and authority to right our broken world. Each story presents the power and authority of Jesus over some aspect of this broken world. The first story in chapter 4 has Jesus calming the storm, which depicts him as Lord of nature or Lord of creation. The second story in chapter 5, again with the the demoniac, presents Jesus as Lord over all evil powers, over the dominion and powers of Satan and his minions. And of course, the two stories we read declare Jesus' authority and power over death and incurable diseases. The woman and Jairus' daughter are both saved from illness and death but not from all death and not from all illnesses. The woman may still have encountered other health issues later in life and would eventually die. The little girl is raised to life, but it's still mortal life. She later died. These stories show us that death and illness will not have the last say because illness and death are not the normal cycle of life. As Genesis two makes clear, because of the power and authority of Jesus, demonstrated through his resurrection, Revelation 21 says that when the fullness of Jesus' kingdom has come, every tear will be wiped away. All pain will be put aside. There will be no more, no more uh, mourning, for death shall cease to exist. Death is, as one writer states, a tragic intrusion for humanity, an aberration resulting from a fallen creation. Through the raising of Jairus' daughter and the healing of the woman, Jesus begins to correct this aberration. The little girl's death and resurrection foreshadow what Jesus will accomplish through his own sacrifice for sin and his resurrection from the dead. New life and new restoration begins and is completed in Jesus. Now there's a story I read, actually recently I'd never heard this, but there's a story about Martin Luther's 14-year-old daughter named Magdalena. She had contracted the plague and was dying, and Luther, of course, was brokenhearted and he knelt beside her bed and begged God to release her from pain. When she had died and the carpenters were nailing the lid of her coffin, Luther screamed out, hammer away! On doomsday, she'll rise again. He shouts this out because Luther understood all who are united to Jesus in faith are promised salvation healing, and restoration. Though today our bodies are mired in illness and decay, but a day is coming, brothers and sisters, a day is coming when in Christ death and decay will be swallowed up in victory, in Christ's victory over death for you and me. Which means that the old order will be completely transformed for those who belong to Jesus so that when we fall asleep in death, we will one day awake to Jesus' voice of daughter, son, get up, come and eat. For we will be in our Father's kingdom and we will eat at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we long for that day when you make all things complete. And though we have a glimpse of that in you, in your life, in your resurrection, we long for it now. And so we pray, Father, that you would give us faith trusting faith in our King, trusting faith in Jesus, who would equip us and enable us to live life fully and freely in the power of Jesus and him alone. In his name we pray. Amen.